Well, good morning. Thanks for, uh, you know, getting out of bed on a dreary uh, Sunday. I don't know about you, but when it's dreary, boy, it's harder to roll my body out. My body says, nope, nope, stay here. No, really, stay here. Uh, so we're glad to have you here um, to worship uh, our Lord and Savior uh, together. And, um, and, and just uh, for those of you who, Frank already said it, but for those of you who are here for the very first time, uh, I haven't met all of you, but I met a couple of you, so uh, glad to do that. Uh, thank you for being here. And I want you to know, this is very important to you, we know, but you, I want you to know that this is very important to us as a church, that this is a safe place for you, your family, your friends, anybody you bring to dig into the Word of God with us. And to follow Christ, not just on a Sunday morning, but passionately every day. That is everything we are about here at Northridge, is to follow Jesus passionately. Not just to say we believe in him. Not just to sing songs to him every now and then. But to passionately follow him and pursue him. In fact, we're going to talk a little bit about that today. And so we're glad that you're here. Thanks for checking us out. Thanks for taking a risk on on a new place, going to a church in a village center. Who ever heard of such a thing, right? So we're glad that you're here. And uh, those of you that are here, and and most of us know this, some of us may not, but we're in the middle of a series uh, called At the Movies, which is why when you came in, you smelled popcorn and we have popcorn at nine o'clock on a Sunday. Uh, We just do things differently here in Northridge and that's okay. Uh, And so we're in this At the Movies series. And today we're going to look at um, or talk about uh, a set of movies, a trilogy of movies that you probably have heard of. Maybe it's been a long time since you've seen this, uh, but we're going to be talking about Back to the Future uh, with Michael J. Fox and all that kind of stuff. And I don't know if you remember that, just, just out of curiosity, how many of you have seen one of the Back to the Future movies? I just want to see. There we go. That's why we picked it. Okay, I knew it. It was, it was kind of one of those things that like you can pick movies that you think, eh, a few people have probably seen this. This is one of those, I, I think most people have probably seen that. That came true. That was almost everybody in here. So just for, to refresh our memory, and for those uh, like two of us that haven't seen the Back to the Future trilogy, um, uh, let me just kind of give you a synopsis of the movies. All three movies are really about the same premise, the same thing. And that is that the main characters in this movie, they either have to go back in time with a time machine. It's a real movie, a real story, by the way, just so you know. I'm just kidding. So I go, they go back, they use this DeLorean, right, the time machine, the flux capacitor, to, to go back in time or in the second one to go forward in time. But the reason that they do that, do you remember the premise of all those movies? The premise behind the whole movie, the reason they are going to do that is because they have to go and change some decisions that were made that have impacted people negatively going forward. You remember that? Like they have to go back and Michael J. Fox, he has to actually, you know, kind of figure all this stuff out so that he's got a picture of him and his brother and his sister. And they're disappeared for a good portion of the movie until they finally change some of the decisions that are made and then they show back up in the picture. And so there's this, there's this understanding that the decisions and the actions that they are going through are going to affect everything going forward. In other words, there's a ripple effect based on what they're doing. Well, today we're going to talk about that same thing, the ripple effect of our lives. You guys know that God created us, who we are, for reasons that we talk about a lot here at Northridge. But sometimes what we don't consider is the actions and decisions that we make on a daily basis will affect 
our future, will affect our relationships, will affect our relationship with God. And so we're going to talk about the ripple effect today. And uh, we're going to use an example out of God's Word, out of the Bible, that is really the perfect example of the ripple effect. We could use a lot of examples out of God's Word, out of the Bible. But this guy, uh, you can just see the ripple effect that happens in his life and because of his life very greatly. And that guy is David. King David in the Bible. Now, we talk, we've talked about David several times before here at Northridge, but it's been quite a while since we've mentioned anything about him. Uh, but let me just give you a synopsis of his story. So David, in the Bible, he is the youngest in the family. He's one of the youngest brothers, okay? And he grew up in a large family. And since he was the youngest, David had the unenviable task of being the lowly shepherd in the family. In other words, they were all doing the important stuff. And David, he's the little brother that they sent out and said, take care of the sheep, David. He's like, oh, I wanted to play Xbox, you know, take care of the sheep, David, right? And that's where they sent him, right? And so he is the lowly shepherd. And just so you know, in this society, shepherds were kind of lowly people. They were kind of low in the society. And so David is in this common family, a lowly shepherd watching the flocks of sheep for his family. And, and, and then, but then there's something that changes in his life. God sends this guy named Samuel. He's a prophet, which is really a fancy word to say he speaks for God. That's what it means. Okay, Samuel's a prophet. He speaks on behalf of God. And God sends Samuel to David's family. And at this point, David is like a young teenager. So he's somewhere in the realm of 12 years old to 16 years old. We don't know exactly how old he was, but he's a young teenager, okay? Still watching the sheep. Still wants to play Oxbox, but he's still watching the sheep. And Samuel shows up at the family, and, and so Samuel says, hey, God sent me to your family because somebody in your family is going to be the next king of Israel. And I'm sure, you know, the father, Jesse, he's like, whoa, this is great. <laughs> and so he brings in, you know, his oldest, and God says to Samuel, nope, not that guy. And he brings in the next son. Nope, not that guy. He brings in the next, nope, not that guy. And, and Samuel, I'm sure, is thinking, he's like, these people look like kings, God. I don't know if you missed it, but these guys are awesome. <laughs> I wouldn't want to go up against them, right? And he goes, nope, 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 nope. And so finally, they get to the end, and there's nobody else. And Samuel says, isn't there anybody else? And his father says, well, there is the, the little guy. There's David. He's out watching the sheep. I mean, he's just watching the sheep. You probably don't need to talk to him. I mean, he's not going to be king. He didn't say that, but that's kind of how he's thinking. And so they bring David in, and God tells Samuel, he says, that's the guy. He's going to be king. And David's like, wow, <laughs> this is a good day. <laughs> I just went from, you know, sheep to now I'm going to be the next king of Israel. Now, of course, it doesn't happen that day. Samuel anoints him with oil and all this stuff. And then he goes back to watching sheep. But fast forward 15 years now. So David's around 30 years old. Okay. And there's a lot of stuff that happens in there. You know, he kills this guy named Goliath. You kind of probably heard that story, right? There's a lot of stuff in between here. But fa fast forward 15 years and David does indeed become the king of Israel. Now, the question I have for us here today is why? Why did God choose David? Why was there a ripple effect from David going from being the common family, lowly shepherd, to being coming king of Israel, to becoming the king of the nation? 
What was the ripple effect that caused that? Well, I want to spend the rest of our time talking about that because how that happened and why this happens is what we need to understand for our own lives if we're going to follow David's example. So in order to answer what the ripple effect was, we need to go to something that David himself wrote. Now, if you go to the middle of the Bible, if you kind of open the middle of the Bible, you'll end up in the book of Psalm, right? And there's a whole bunch of Psalms in there. And a good portion of those Psalms were written by, guess who? David. And God put them into his word. And you understand that God formed this thing because this is what he wanted in here. And so he allowed David to write a huge portion of the middle of this book, the Psalms. And I want to read from one of those Psalms that tells you a little bit about who David is and the kind of person he is, which tells us a little bit about why he became the king of Israel, why God chose him specifically to become the king. In fact, let me just give you the context of this Psalm, Psalm 63. Psalm 63 was written by David when he was running for his life. He wrote this psalm when he was running for his life. He was in the Judean wilderness, in the desert. And the reason he was there, a lot of people don't ha- haven't caught this part of the story. We don't talk about this part of the story with David. But the reason he was in the wilderness, he was king, but he was hiding for his life. That doesn't make sense, does it? He's the king of Israel, yet he's running for his life. He's, he's by himself in the desert, in the wilderness. And he's, and he's hiding for his, his very existence. And the reason is because his own son, the prince, has started a revolt, a rebellion against his own father and is trying to kill him. Okay, this is the part that we don't hear a lot about David's life. So David is in the desert, he's in the wilderness, and it is in that place, probably one of the lowest points in his life, maybe the lowest, we don't know, but it was definitely ranked at the top of the lowest points of his life, He writes this psalm, Psalm 63. It's important to understand the context in order to hear what he's saying and how powerful this is. Listen to what he says. Psalm 63, starting with verse 1. David writes, O God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in your sanctuary and gazed upon your power and glory. He's talking about he's worshipped him in the temple. And that's what he's talking about. Your unfailing love is better than life itself. How I praise you. I will praise you as long as I live, lifting up my hands to you in prayer. You satisfy me more than the richest feast. I will praise you with songs of joy. Beautiful poetry, amazing language. But remember that all of that that he just wrote, I mean, unbelievable praise to God. He's writing in the lowest point of his life or one of the lowest points. So what does this Psalm 63 tell us about the ripple effects of David's life and who he is? Well, I want to talk about two things real quick. The first one that it tells us is it tells us what our focus should be in life. And I know that you guys probably feel like we kind of hit that topic a lot, but I think the reason is because I don't know about you, but have you noticed that we get distracted, right? I mean, I, I, I joke about this, and my family knows this, uh, because I, I, I enjoy people so much, and so people like having conversation here, having conversation there. I, I'm kind of like, uh, if you've seen the movie Up, I'm kind of like the dog, squirrel! You know, they could be right in the middle of something, squirrel! And that's what they, that's how... I kind of operate sometimes, and I, and I know that. 
But I think that we operate that way in life too. We operate a lot in life. And our squirrel is work and conflict and gossip and social media. Frank, you mentioned social media. It can be used for good, but it can also be used for great evil. Am I right? right? There's been a lot of backlash on Facebook because of the evil that is there. Because it's become not what it was intended to be to connect people. It's now become a platform for hatred. And we get lost and we kind of forget that our focus in life needs to be on God. And David shows that God is his everything. God is his foundation. God is his guidance. God is is everything to him. I mean, if you read Psalm 63, it is very difficult to read that and not come to the conclusion that God is everything to David, right? I mean, when he says, like, my soul thirsts for you, that's not kind of like, God, I kind of like you. You're kind of cool. No, my soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you. I mean, he says these kinds of things. God is all-consuming to David. Now, to be honest, I mean, when I say my soul thirsts for you, my whole body longs for you, I've seen you in your sanctuary, your unfailing is better than life itself. You satisfy me more than the richest feast. When you hear these things, let's be honest. Okay, I want to call something else out here. Does that sound a little weird to you? I'll be honest, when I read this, and I've read this before, but I'm saying when I read this kind of with fresh eyes again this week, it comes across almost a little weird. You're thirsting for God, like your whole body longs for God, like it's just, that's weird. Some of you are thinking that. Some of us might be thinking, he sounds kind of like a fanatic. He sounds a little crazy. He sounds a little obsessed. And I want to call this out because I think in the United States, that maybe is our problem. And I know that I dealt with it this week as I read it. I had that thought, and I couldn't believe I had that thought. I knew I was supposed to preach on this, and I still had that thought that, wow, David, you seem a little over the top. Sounds a little weird. Like if I started talking like that, people I think would just look at me and like step back and be like, kids, let's... (laughs) Stay away from that guy. I don't know. <laughs> and we sometimes think that, that we're not supposed to live passionately for Christ out there in the real world. You know why? Because, because we might offend somebody or because we might be seen as like David as a fanatic. But I think, I don't know, maybe I'm crazy here too, but I think that maybe we're the ones that are off and David's the one that's right. Would you agree with me on that? Maybe you don't. Maybe you're still getting there. But let me just tell you, David's right. <laughs> David is consumed by God. He's consumed by him. Everything in his life is about God. Now, understand, he's the king, so he's got kingly, stately things to do, right? He's got a very busy guy. Like, if we think we're busy, you were busy. So is David. David's the king. He's got a lot of stuff to take care of. But God is his all-consuming focus. And that needs to be something that we need to realize. Now, there's a second thing that I, that I see, though, in Psalm 63 that is also important. Not only is his direction, like where his eyes and his focus and what he's thinking about all the time, God, but then there's something else that David kind of takes it to another degree in his faith, in his walk with God. 
And that is that he pursues God actively with everything that is in him. Do you notice that? He said, my soul literally thirsts for you, God. Okay, that is not like David spends a couple of minutes in prayer, right? And says, God, well, that was good, but I I got some things to do. (laughs) I got to go sit on my throne for a while, right? I mean, David, he pursues a relationship with God. He pursues it. Now, we talk a lot here at Northridge all the time about how God pursues us, right? You guys know that. God, we just talked about it last week. God will always leave the 99 to go after the one. Every time, he's going to leave the 99 to go after the one. We talked about that last week, right? The parable of the lost sheep. But we need to also realize that part of our relationship with God is pursuing him. Right? Think about what you spend your time and your money and your energy and your effort on, that has huge impacts for the future, doesn't it? Doesn't it? If you guys want your child to be good in, say, a sport or in a certain academic you know, area, whatever, say math. I don't know why you'd want to do that, but whatever. <laughs> you guys know I'm not fond of math. All right? It's because I had to work my tail off for it. Uh, but whatever you want them to be good at and you want them to see, you see their future, like succeed in this, you're going to have them spend time on it and effort on it and energy on it. Am I right? You're going to have them spend a lot of effort investing into that. Think about the, the people that you know the clo- that you're the closest to, the people you know. The, the kind of people, you guys probably have a couple of these, maybe more than a couple, but you have some of these in your life. The people that you know, you can probably finish some of their sentences because you know them so well. Like if a certain situation happens, you know this is how they're going to react and you're trying to react before they react, Right? Because you know them so well. Let me ask you this. How do you know those people so well? How do you know them so well? Because you spend time with them. Because you talked with them. You've told them stories. You've listened to their stories. You've hung out with them. You've cried with them. You've probably laughed with them. You've been there when they've needed it. They've been there when you've needed it. In other words, you've invested in them and they have invested in you. See, the same is with God. And we don't see God that way. Why do we not see God as somebody that we need to have a relationship with? Because the Bible talks about it constantly. It's the whole point of Jesus, was to give us that bridge to have a relationship with God. Why do we not see God in the same way we see some close family members or close friends? We have to invest. In fact, let me, let me just tell you, this, this is kind of one of those tweetable things, right? There's a huge difference between knowing that God is or should be important in your life and making God important in your life. Am I right? I'll be honest. I don't know what the percentage is, but the high, high percentage of, of, uh, of Americans say that they believe in God. Good for you. That doesn't do you any good other than you believe in God. That's good. That's a good start. It has to go past that. It has to go beyond just believing because just knowing that God is good, just knowing that God is ex- exists, just knowing that God should be important is not to the level that it needs to be. What do you need to do? You have to go to that next level, which is what? You gotta make God important in your life. 
right? If, if I, I, I don't even have, you know, this is, you guys know I go on rabbit trails. I, I, you know, that's what I do, right? I mean, if, 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 I, if I believe that Laura is really important to me, that I should love her, and I say, you know, Laura, I believe in you. I believe I should love you. I really do. But I never spend time with her. I never say I love you. I never do anything to, to help her understand that I love her. Well, then how valuable is the fact that I believe that I should love her? All right? Doesn't do any good. It's not where it should be. How many of you just want somebody to believe they should love you, but not actually love you? Yeah, I don't think so. This is exactly how we treat God sometimes. We're like, somebody to believe in. No, somebody to live for and pursue passionately every day because he desires to have that relationship. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, some of you are in this realm of investments, and so it's always dangerous territory for me to try to get into that, me being a non-math guy. But in investments, it's the same way, right? There, let's say you get to the end of life and, you know, all kind of stuff, and you're ready to retire, and then you kind of look at it, and you look at your account and kind of see where you're at and all that stuff, and then you go to your, your financial advisor, right? Uh, and, and you go in there and say, hey, so... Uh, how is it looking? You know, I'm ready to retire in a couple years. Like, how are we doing? And he says, well, there's nothing in there. <laughs> well, but I believed in investment. I believed it was important. I believed it was good. I believe investment is good. I believed in it. And he says, yeah, but did you invest? Well, no, but I believed in it. Well, <laughs> okay. Well, there, there's a problem there. <laughs> There's a gap there. Like, I'm glad you believed in investment. You probably should have invested, right? It's kind of one of the, in fact, I have this graph. One, one thing that we know between, with investment is you, you have to, the earlier you start, the better it is, and the more consistent, one of the keys is consistency, right? You guys that are in investment, you know this, okay? So this is the difference. If you start after 40 in this kind of realm, 8% uh, compounded monthly, okay? It's a compound interest, I think. If you start after 40, then you end up at the end, like 67, with $60,000, Okay? That, that's trying to be consistent, but kind of starting a little bit later. If you start earlier and remain consistent in your investment, like you invest consistently, then what you will end up with is close to half a million dollars is the difference. Now, I don't want to get stuck on numbers. But the same that is true in investment is true in our relationship with God. How much are you investing in your relationship with God? How much are you putting in? How much are you giving time, energy, money, resources, whatever, to God? How much are you pursuing Him? Because I know, I promise you, God promises He's pursuing you. The question is, are you pursuing Him? A relationship has to go both ways, doesn't it? It's a give and take thing. It's a back and forth thing. And so this investment stuff is the same, with, is true with God. How much you invest in God will reap benefits and rewards. Let me, let me just put it this way. Investment, if you want more money at the end, you've got to invest more money now. Would that make sense, right? The same is true spiritually. If you would like, let me ask you this, more hope. How many of you would like more hope? You don't have to raise your hand. How many of you would like more hope? 
How many of you like more joy? No, I'd like less joy. I really want to be down and sad and awful, and I, I want to hate life. I really want to hate life. Right? I, don't, I don't hear anybody say that. We want joy. Who wants more peace in their life? Like real peace. I'm not talking about quiet. Like Laura and I long for that sometimes, uh, all the time. Rarely get it. No, I'm talking about peace, the kind of peace where your heart and your soul, everything's right. Where I felt this a few times in my life where God is, I believe, has just given this and it's and sometimes just fleeting, it's quick. But where you feel warm, it's not like it's not like the movies where I'm like floating through clouds. <laughs> God, I love the peace. <laughs> That's I don't know what that is. That's just weird, right? That's Hollywood. No, I'm talking about where I'm just there and, and I know all is good, even though everything is not good. Some of the greatest peace in my life has come in the midst of tough stuff. Not all the time. Sometimes I get wrapped up in what's going on and I, I forget. If you want more joy and peace and hope and salvation and forgiveness in your life, how much are you putting in? Because God has already offered it to you. Just a matter of pursuing it. Allowing God in for you to experience that. So David's life, the reason he rippled effect, and, and we have this, that he ends up as the king of Israel, is largely because of the way that he lived his life. He pursued God, and God knew that, and so he wanted him in. He wanted him in. But if you think David was perfect, he is not. <laughs> king David was not perfect. In fact, I want to give you another example of a ripple effect, the other side of the coin, so to speak. In this case, David is king, but he makes a huge mistake, a sinful mistake. He forgets his focus on God. He's human, right? And, and he makes a huge mistake. And in the, uh, I won't go into details, but essentially the mistake is he has an affair with another man's wife. And then in order to cover it up, he kills the husband. He murders him. Now, he doesn't do it himself, but he has it done. Okay? Remember, this is the guy that just wrote Psalm 63. He's got words in the Bible. Okay? Again, some of us, all of a sudden, uncomfortable ground again. Right? Oh, that fanatic again. <laughs> But David has this affair, and then he, he commits murder to cover it up. And then what happens is God sends a different prophet, not Samuel this time. He sends in this next prophet named Nathan to confront the king about his sin. By the way, how many of you want that job? Hey, Nathan, you need to go confront the most powerful person in your country who can do anything he wants to you, and you need to tell him that he's wrong and that he sinned. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be a fun conversation. Right? Let's schedule coffee for that right away. So God sends Nathan in, but Nathan takes it on. He knows he needs to obey God, and so he goes in, and Nathan wisely shares a story with David in order to set him up. That's literally what the prophet of Nathan does. Sometimes setup is okay. <laughs> and he sets David up. And I want to just read this because you kind of can understand. This is a long passage. Just kind of bear with me and listen to what's going on here. He tells the story and then he brings it home. He kind of hammers it home at the end of the story to help David understand who he really is and why he's so off, why he's gotten off track. This is what he says. 2 Samuel 12, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan, the prophet, to David. 
When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan the prophet, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Here comes the hammer. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. God's telling him all the promises that he's given to David. I gave you your master's house to you, your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, listen to what God says, I would have given you even more. He says, David, I, I was ready to give you everything. Why did you despise the word of the Lord? By doing what is evil. In his eyes, you struck down Uriah, that's the husband that he killed, the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, listen to the ripple effect. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your own. Do you remember when he wrote Psalm 63? That happens after this. Do you know why his son led a rebellion against his own father and tried to kill him? The reason was because of David's sin. It was a ripple effect. But the good news is, because we could leave it there and say, thanks for the encouraging message today. <laughs> Glad I got out of bed for that one. David shows us exactly what we need to do when we are confronted by God, when we are confronted by someone who calls us in our sin. Verse 13, very simple phrase, just one, a few, few words. Listen to what he says. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Now that may not seem overly powerful to you, but I want us to remember that this is the king of Israel saying this. He can do anything he wants to Nathan. He can take Nathan out because understand that Nathan, the prophet, is the only one that knows the truth about David. You realize that, right? He's the only one that knows the truth about what David did. The only reason Nathan knows is because God knows. And God told Nathan. And he said, Nathan, you got to go confront the king. He's like, are you serious? Yes, you got to go. And he does it, and Nathan's the only person on the planet who knows David's sin. David could take care of this problem right now. He's the king. He can do whatever he wants. But he doesn't do any more cover-up. And at this point, he realizes that he is wrong with God. His relationship with God has been broken because of his sin. And so David 
humbles himself before God and before this prophet. And he says, I am wrong. I have sinned. I messed up. We see the greatest example of David in this story. I want to ask you, because I don't think we consider this very often. When you're confronted in your sin, what is your response? When someone calls you out on something that you're doing that you know you shouldn't be doing, what tends to be your response? Do you welcome it and say, you're right, I love you. Forgive me. I humble myself. I've sinned. Or do you throw down and you say, back off and you get defensive and you say, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. And start making excuses. David understood that he was wrong and he humbled himself before God to make sure that he could restore the relationship that was lost. And the ripple effect moves on from there. Now, David, as you know, we talk about a lot of time here at Northridge. David was not perfect. David, God made David the king of Israel, and God allowed David to write a good portion of the Bible. Right? But it wasn't because, I, I want us to understand this. This is really important. God did not allow David to write a portion of the Bible and to become king of Israel because he was perfect. Okay? I mean, he committed adultery and he murdered somebody to cover it up. I don't know about you, but in the United States, that pastor's never going to be a pastor. <laughs> right? There's no way. Like, let's check the background. Oh, You've only committed a few major felonies. Perfect. Let, when can you start? Right? That's not going to happen because our forgiveness, we, we see this totally different. And, and what God sees is that it's not perfection, but it is faithfulness. We talked about this just a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? It is not perfection, it is faithfulness. And faithfulness, a big, huge, huge part of faithfulness is when you sin, and by the way, you have sinned. Some of you are sinning right now. You know how I know that? Because it's a constant problem. I struggle with it too. I, I do. Guys, I get it. We're human. But when you sin and when you're called out for it, and when God, sometimes he does it just to your soul, sometimes he uses other people. By the way, it's easier for me when God calls it out and, instead of ha him having somebody else call it to me. I have a harder time taking it from somebody personally. I don't know about you, but it's just, it is. But God sometimes chooses that. And I think he knows, he knows that that's when I need to be humbled even more. <laughs> David was not perfect. We're not called to be perfect. We are called to be faithful. But this is all the reason of why his ripple effect in life was amazing. It's because of this. Acts 13, 22 tells us who David really was at the core, in his heart. Listen to what it says. It says, God removed Saul, that was the previous king, and replaced him with David, a man about whom God said. These are God's words about David. I have found David, son of Jesse, 
a man after my own heart. Listen to what he says. God says about David, he will do everything I want him to do. He's a man after my own heart. See, how we respond, how you respond, how I respond to people and to God affects everything in our future. Everything. Both good and bad. Both good and bad, as we see from David's life. Both good and bad. The sword never did leave his life. His, his family experienced violence the rest of his days because of his sin. But he also had unbelievable blessing and peace and joy in his life in the midst of that because he had a heart after God. It wasn't perfect, but it was faithful. So let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Are you faithful? We don't use that word very often. Are you faithful? to your heavenly Father who loves you? Are you pursuing Him with everything that's in you? Or is He just something to think about every now and then? When I was a teenager, uh, I lived in Eau Claire. Uh, so I, I did my middle school, high school years in Eau Claire. And, um, and at the local church that we were at, um, the church did, was not able to, I don't know all the details, I was a teenager, so I didn't care, you know, it's like one of those kind of things, but the church was not able to pay for a youth pastor, or couldn't get a youth pastor, or maybe didn't find the right person, whatever the case was, and, and so as a teenager, I, all I knew was just my own little personal bubble, which I realized I should have been out of uh, a lot more. But one thing that as a result of that, not having a regular youth pastor, they actually asked or, or talked to a, a gal named Annette Berger, uh, was her name. And she came in and she became kind of the volunteer. She did this all volunteer. And she came in to lead the youth ministry at the church when I was a teenager. And so I, my ministry, and when I was learning about God and all those kind of things as a teenager, uh, I learned a lot from her. Because she was the one that would teach and, and do the stuff and, and lead our groups. And then she let us, of course, be in highly involved but Annette Berger would do this, and, and, and so fast forward to when I graduate, and when I graduate, we had a, had a service, and there were a few of us that were graduating that year, and, uh, and one thing that she did, and of course this came from the church, but she was the one that gave it, but she gave us each a Bible, and I showed this a couple of weeks ago at my, uh, when we honored our graduates, and we gave them Bibles, by the way, and this is my Bible, and as you can see, this thing is... Uh, it's turning yellow, <laughs> and there's notes in there. What is God saying to me? That's cool. I hadn't actually opened that this morning. There's notes in there. There's questions, and the thing is falling apart. And the reason is, is because I've used it a lot. But there's another thing that Annette said that day that has stuck with me. She went to each one of us, and she spoke some truth into our lives, prayed some truth into our lives. And what was interesting is one of the guys that was there, his name is Trevor, he's a good friend of mine, um, and she told him and, and prayed into him, said, you're going to be the next Stephen Curtis Chapman. Now, if you know Stephen Curtis Chapman or you don't, it doesn't matter, but he's a, a very well-known, very famous music, Christian music artist. Writes songs, amazing. And guess what? Trevor, to this day, is now writing songs. He's leading worship in a church in New York. 
at a church that's doing amazing things. And Annette said a lot of things to a lot of people. But one thing she told me, she said, you're going to be the next Billy Graham. <laughs> Whoa, serious. <laughs> that's scary. <laughs> I know that's not going to be it. But understand that at the time, I was getting ready to go to college. And I would get into biology and study science for a while. And then I realized, no, that wasn't it. And then I got into education. And as you guys know, my story, I've told my story. Then I became a public school teacher for several years. But I had people speaking in truth into my life to help me understand that I need to make sure I'm following God. And I think sometimes a lot of them, including my parents who are sitting right here, they knew that I was probably not quite on the right path. I was doing okay. I was good. By all accounts, the world looks at me and says, ah, he's doing good. He's a successful teacher. He's doing great. He's going to have a good pension. That's awesome. But I think my parents, Annette Berger, there's a few others in my life, they'd speak into me and say, listen, this is who I think God is maybe calling you to be. You just need to think about it. The most important thing in life is to make sure that you're staying in step with God. When I talk about Northridge to other people, when they ask about us, like who we are, one of the things that I say, you probably, some of you in here I'm sure have heard this because I say it all the time. But us as a church and us as people and individuals, our whole entire existence needs to be about one thing. And that is staying in step with God. Where he's stepping, we step with him. And as a church, that's our goal. So we're not, we're not dragging behind where God is going, come on, right? Like sometimes when you know, my four-year-old doesn't want to go somewhere, it's like, right? Not that we're dragging behind and not that we're racing ahead. Like, God, we're going to do this. I'm going to go here. I'm going to have this career. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And it's awesome. And God's back here going, you missed like 12 turns. This is, I made you for this and you missed it. The most important thing in life is to walk and be in step with God every day. And it's a daily basis because we get off the path. I do. So I want to ask you this question this morning. What impact are you having? What ripples are you causing? If you think about what your life's about, what you spend your time on, what your focus is, how you're treating people, especially those that are closest to you, what are the ripples of that? Where's that going? Because I think sometimes we just try to get through the day and we don't consider the direction of what that day is leading to. 10 years, 15 years, 20 years down the road. So my question is, what impact are you having? What ripples are you causing? My hope and prayer is that God is your focus and your all-consuming passion. Because I know it sounds weird, especially when we read it from David, but David has it right. His heart 
was after God. And that's my prayer for you. Let's pray. God, I pray very simply this morning that you would make all of us, men, women, children, teenagers, babies, it it doesn't matter what age we are, what our situation is. I pray that you'd help us to be people after your heart. That you would help us to passionately pursue a relationship with you. I know there are people hurting here in this room today. They're just struggling with life, struggling with purpose, struggling with with who they are, struggling with conflict in their life. And so much of that, God, not all of it, but so much of it can be attributed to the fact that we lose sight of who you are and who you need to be in our life. I know when I struggle, it's, it's because I've taken my eyes off the most important thing. Pray that you'd help us to pursue you passionately daily basis and not allow this world to give us idols and things to chase after. God, may you be the most important thing as I pray with my children every single chance I get. I pray that you would be the most important thing, the central thing in our entire life every day. God, we declare our love for you today. We declare that our soul needs to thirst for you and that it does thirst for you and that we long for your peace and your joy and your forgiveness and your salvation and your power in our life. We ask this and we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.